Hello, Minnesota. I'm Tony Hernandez. And this is Leona. Welcome to episode four of Marital Counseling. Oops, wait, wrong show. (laughs) Episode number four of Hello, Minnesota. In this show, we will address a user letter, give you some updates with our plans for the winter, discuss a brief timeline of suppression and expansion of voter rights in America, and share what we learned about the Electoral College. What do you know about the Electoral College? Is it a good system? First, we'd like to thank you all for listening and supporting our early efforts to build the show. We love hearing your feedback, and we are Mm -hmm. so grateful to those who have shared our podcast links on social media and liked our posts. Our goal is to grow our audience and improve with every show. We realize we still have so much to learn about writing, research, and recording. So your partnership and loyalty are critical components to the show's success, and we thank you. One of the biggest challenges that we have is trying to find the time to record our shows while balancing other responsibilities of homeschooling, taking care of our kids, work and money, and the obstacles and stresses created by the pandemic that never seems to go away. In fact, we're recording live right now from our cabin home in Dent, Minnesota in Nottertail County, and we have the kids in the other room, so if there are brief moments of them screaming, hopefully with joy, we (laughs) apologize for that. First and foremost, address our last show. It wasn't uh, exactly an easy topic for either of us to address, but we found it necessary because of all the allegations of racism and white supremacy leveled against really both candidates at this point. And we wanted to dig deep and to really find out what the remnants of truth were that were there. But we uh, received the letter, private letter. We'll keep uh, these people anonymous. But I thought that... They brought up some really important points that we want to uh, clarify, but specifically it's uh, in terms of the comments that uh, President Trump made regarding Mexicans in uh, his original um, introduction speech to his candidacy. And the question came down to my great-grandfather, who I spoke about. He said, if your great-grandfather was truly escaping from terrible conditions— and was confronted with the near impossible ability to immigrate legitimately today, would he have resigned himself and a family to a hopeless situation, or would he have tried to find any way possible to give them a better life? Tough question. He was clearly fortunate. So first and foremost, with my great-grandfather, the times were much, much different then. Uh, so it's hard to speculate on exactly what the situation would be today that he would find himself in. But back then, in the early 1900s, Mexico was in the midst of a bloody revolution. So there was a civil war. The government was fighting the revolutionaries. The economy was absolutely horrendous. And uh, also you had the added factor that the United States was desperate for labor. They needed farm labor. They needed manufacturing labor, factory labor. They needed labor. So there's uh, immense efforts to bring in people from Mexico and Latin American countries and other countries around the world to come here and work. And today, that situation is slightly different. But if uh, my great-grandfather were facing the same conditions, you know, if he were alive today and he was facing... A bloody civil war, starvation, lack of economy, all those factors in his native country or Mexico, uh, he would be technically, I believe, qualified to come to the United States under asylum. And there's a process at the border 
if people are coming here seeking political asylum that they can sign up for, that they can go into the systems for and ultimately be granted asylum if those courts decide that that's a legitimate situation for that particular family. So I don't want to go necessarily into the details of how that all works because I don't understand how it fully works. All I know is that the situation that my great-grandfather found himself in then uh, would qualify today to come to the United States. And we need to be open as a country and we need to have streamlined systems to accept people who are coming here with a refugee status or, or political asylum status. Um, and so that's kind of how I would answer that question. What do you think, Leona? Does that make sense? Or? Yeah, I mean, I appreciate um, this message that our friend sent us so much because um, I think it, it brings up some really good points uh, or extremely important points, I should say. Um, I think that personally i i really am turned off by the way that that trump um talks about these these issues of of immigration and asylum seekers but i guess when i vote i want to think about what's best for these people either wanting to immigrate or particularly those needing to seek asylum and i guess i think it makes sense to look at to look at the whole party, um, to look at the fact that as a whole, the Republican Party was was appalled when Trump was separating children from their families at the border. This was not a conservative uh, principle by any means or or a Republican uh, desire. This was this was wrong, and Republicans spoke out against it. We both like stated in the last show too that we want to increase the amount of legal immigration. So, mm-hmm. in my viewpoint, and I don't, my viewpoint's not shared widespread. But if somebody or family wants to come to the United States and they want to work hard, they want to get a job. Uh, they're coming here because they're attracted uh, to uh, the economy that they want to take part in. Uh, my feeling is let's open the gates of legal immigration. We want more people that want to come here, work, start businesses. But thank you for making that comment. We certainly appreciate that. We appreciate all your comments. We know that we get into some heated topics here. Not necessarily intentionally, but that's just sometimes where we find ourselves. Right, Leona? Yes. So anyways, uh, the pandemic is picking up. and Another non non-controversial topic another non-controversial topic but we just wanted to kind of give some updates because uh, as many of you know leona is an icu nurse she worked in new york city she also worked in florida while they were experiencing kind of their their biggest surges of, of covid um but yeah so in the earliest days of the pandemic so in like early march we but mostly tony if i'm being honest I was very certain that the pandemic was going to last for a long time, dramatically altering our family's future until at least the fall of 2021. The timing of the first shutdown in Minnesota was the worst possible timing for us in terms of our family finances. Yeah, I mean, we so I just had two less than two years starting out in my real estate business, less than two years in the home improvement company that I started that helps homeowners get their homes ready for sale. 
we were just coming off winter time and winter's by far like the slowest time or it has been for the last few years. It's where we make the least amount of money, where we have the least amount of business. And we're basically just kind of trying to gear up towards spring and summer. And just as we were getting through the winter and into the spring surge, the pandemic clearly had made its way into America. And soon the economy was shut down across the country, including here in Minnesota. To make matters worse, while I was driving to the micro center in a panic because a rumor was wildly spreading that the Minnesota National Guard was about to be deployed to enforce a lockdown in Minnesota. I don't know if people got those texts, but <laughs> it sent me, I was like, what do I need to get? And for some reason, micro center popped into my mind. And <laughs> as I'm driving down on Highway 100. So I'd like to be clear, we were not the ones hoarding uh, Clorox wipes and no, toilet paper. We were the ones. Equipment. Yeah. So. <laughs> so I'm driving down Highway 100 and all of a sudden something failed in my truck. Turned out it was the turbos and then that sent oil or something into the engines and caused the cylinder to crack and plumes of white smoke just was trailing down the entire entire highway like I was that guy like you literally couldn't see anything and I got the microphone though but my truck was officially dead yes so ironically I think that you bought the Yeti microphone that we're using today mm-hmm. that day right mm-hmm. yes uh, it's crazy to reflect on those days prior to the pandemic or at the start of the pandemic um in some ways, it seems so long ago, but it really wasn't not that that long ago, but a lot has changed. At the time, I was at home full time with our kids. Tony was gone working uh, many days, sometimes past the dinner hours and sometimes on weekends. As you know from our first show, Tony and I were working through some marital conflicts regarding our educational vision for our children. We were constantly stressed. We ultimately decided together to commit to homeschooling, and shortly after this decision, the shutdown was announced and all schools pivoted to distance learning. We had new conflicts and challenges before us, as did everyone. As the days and weeks progressed, it became clear Governor Walls's lockdown was going to far exceed the initial 15 days we were told we needed to stay home to flatten the curve and afford our health care system time to prepare 15 days turned to 30, and the stated goals changed from buying hospitals to the unknown. Buying time for the hospitals. Okay. Meanwhile, New York City was experiencing a super surge event, and they were in desperate need of ICU and ER staff. I'll always remember streaming the news and seeing Governor Cuomo plead into the country for more for more ICU RNs that day. Yeah, I remember Tony calling me over and replaying the news clip of Governor Cuomo. Um that was I, I always felt very thankful to be able to be home full time with our children. It was something that um, we had worked towards for several years and it was still relatively new that I was home full time. Um, I didn't feel guilty about not working because there are just so many incredible nurses and um yeah, I just I felt very grateful to be home with our kids. However, once the pandemic hit, uh, for the first time, I actually did feel a little guilty that I was not working. Um, I had only worked in a pediatric ICU, but I my experience was in an ICU, so that made me feel especially like perhaps I ought to be uh, working as a nurse at this time. One of um, our dear friends and neighbors is a nurse, and I was able to talk with her a lot, and I... Um, always outside, don't worry. But we were talking one day um, in our, actually, I think this time was literally across the street. 
and just talking about how how crazy it was and all the changes and um and I joked like well maybe you'll get a text from me that I'm flying to New York <laughs> um and I and I was genuinely joking although in my mind I did feel a little bit like perhaps I should do that um and then it was one day when we were we were on a walk. We were trying to figure out what to do with the truck. I don't know all of these things. Mm-hmm. And uh, and Tony. We went to the stations of the cross. Outside. No, that was when I actually accepted oh. the job. Oh. This was before when we were first talking about it. And Tony basically was like, I think you should consider it. Like, as as far as we know at the time, we didn't know that much about the virus. But you don't seem to be one of the highest risk populations. They need people. And... At the time, for the most part, we were both at home with our three mm-hmm. children. Um, and uh, we prayed about it a little bit, thought about it a little bit. And I think 48 hours later, I had an offer to go to New York for eight weeks on a travel nurse contract. And yes, I accepted the offer right after we did an outdoor Stations of the Cross. <laughs> yeah, it is crazy to think about those days. But like most of you, we are just doing our best to make it through to the other side of this while doing what's best for our children and for our family's future. There's so much toxicity added to the whole idea of the pandemic because we are in a vicious election year. And rather than allowing the political division to to define us during this time, we thought it would be best to put our heads down and do what we can do as a family so that Leona can help others recover and heal or sadly die with dignity. If loved ones could not be at the side of their COVID-19 patients, having Leona there is the next best thing. You might be a little bit biased, but maybe I certainly do not want anybody to be in that situation alone. Um, This does not mean that we are not deeply concerned with the political divisions and violence in America. We are and we care very much about this. We do not want to engage in the sometimes toxic politics of the coronavirus. as a nurse who has worked now in four different hospitals on COVID units, um, I think I have seen probably the most awful effects of the virus itself. And um, I do think it's important that we all recognize that there's a lot of uncertainty regarding the winter. So, so far we've only experienced COVID starting at the very end of the winter going into the spring, but now we are going to be entering winter for the first time still without a vaccine, still with only minimal treatments for this virus. We all know the days are shorter, colder, people's immune systems are weaker at this time as a result. Um, And we have other, you know, pneumonias worse at this time, always influenza. This is influenza season in addition to COVID. So I do think it's crucial that all of us take measures and make plans to protect those who are most vulnerable um, to having severe effects from this virus. I think we all know our seniors, those who struggle with obesity, asthma, heart excuse me, heart conditions, high blood pressure, immune deficiencies, and other identified comorbidities. Um, for these people, COVID-19 is a major threat um, to their health and to their lives. So I think it's important that we that we do what we can to prevent the spread of the virus um, to those people. Um, use common sense when we can, um, and and really thinking of, of those people specifically with this virus. So on top of those basic measures, and I'm not a doctor nor a nurse, but 
you can protect yourself by strengthening your immune system and making personal health decisions that will keep your body strong to fight off the virus if you become infected. Get outside in the sun, even when it's cold. Exercise often. Take vitamin D supplements. Drink echinacea tea. Drink plenty of water. Drink less alcohol. Don't smoke. Get plenty of sleep. And encourage others in your household to do the same. It is quite possible that the reason, and this is just a theory, but it's possible that the reason why the United States tops the world in death rates is because we have a less healthy population compared to other countries. As Americans, we don't always eat the most healthy foods, which leads to increased uh, rates of diabetes and obesity, heart and blood pressure issues, and higher uh, rates of death and worse outcomes to those most vulnerable battling COVID-19. We also have a large aging baby boomer population. So, and Leona and I have gone back and forth about this. And I know it's controversial, but you know, we have to protect our grandparents and our parents. They're going to want to hang out uh, with family. We're coming on to the holiday season. I know we hear messages from Dr. Fauci and the Minnesota State Health Department telling people to rethink their holiday plans. And uh, I, I really believe, actually, this is this is good advice. It doesn't mean don't have a holiday, don't hang out with others, but it, it means be smart about it. Maybe don't do it like you did it last year, where everybody was crammed into the into into the aunt's house or uncle's house. Just put in some extra safeguards in place to protect those who are most vulnerable, so that it's not grandma and grandpa or mom and dad's last holiday. So, well, it's not really our. Uh our place to give advice on any of this since we are. I do want to say, and this is what Tony and I talk about a lot, I I agree with everything that both of us just said, but I also I feel like we need to be a little bit comprehensive as well. Um, in New York, I only cared for, well, up until my very, my second to last shift, I cared for people who did not have COVID, but otherwise I was on a COVID, in a COVID ICU the entire time. Um, in Florida, however, I took care of people who had COVID about half the time. And then the other half of the time I was caring for people in the hospital without COVID. And um, granted, as I said before, I've always been a pediatric nurse up until up until the pandemic. But I did see people hospitalized for things that I think should have been prevented and were an effect of the pandemic. Um, there were two really awful situations where where um, adults were in the ICU with failure to thrive because they had stopped eating. And I spoke to their children on the phone. I think they had very loving children. They had children who lived very close to them. And their children were like, well, we just we couldn't see them like it's COVID. We couldn't do anything with them. And um, so it's not our place to say. I just think, yes, we need to realize the reality of how this virus affects or can affect especially people in high risk situations while also recognizing the fact that we continue to be whole people who do need human interaction to some degree and I think I think we need to be I guess my push is to be creative so I think perhaps not everyone getting all together in one house is is wise this year but I don't think that means that we say like oh sorry grandma sorry grandpa you're just gonna have to sit this Christmas out um, and so I don't know exactly what that looks like, but I I, I have seen firsthand um, people die from our response to the virus who were not infected with the virus. And I think we need to be aware of, of both of those situations. Just be smart, be compassionate, yeah. and have a plan. 
Yeah. So we have an announcement, though. So Leona went to New York City, and then we went to Florida, mm-hmm. and in less than a week, we're leaving for a border town. We are. It's uh, called El Centro, California. Mm-hmm. It's a tiny town right on the border of Mexico and the United States, halfway between the southern uh, border of California. That's probably why they call it El Centro. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to drive down in our van in our Beverly Hillbilly trailer <laughs> filled with the kids' bikes, waterproof bin full of books and supplies the stroller all the big bulky stuff that we can't bring on a plane and uh, we did vote up here early in otter tail county in the government center in fergus falls so we got that one done and we're still going to broadcast uh we're going to bring our microphone and our (laughs) in our computer with us in in the trailer i guess or probably not in the trailer you get wet if it rains but uh we're still going to be broadcasting and since we started this, we, we've never, we tried to refrain from having rules, like we're going to broadcast X amount per mm-hmm. week or whatever, because we just, uh, we, we just need to be flexible at this point, but we have every intent to keep broadcasting regularly. For the remainder of the show, we're going to discuss what we learned about the history of voting in America, efforts to restrict who can vote and expansion of rights to vote, suffrage, the electoral college system, and efforts to move our country towards a national popular vote. So, Leona, have you ever wondered why we vote on Tuesdays and in November? I have un- honestly never thought about that until now. Any educated guesses? Um, maybe November has something to do with the weather. You're on the right track. In 18th century America, most people lived in rural areas and were farmers. So November was an ideal time to hold an election because most farmers would have completed their harvest work and the winter weather had not fully yet arrived. And Tuesday was determined to be the most ideal day because many of the voters needed to saddle up. They needed to travel, sometimes for a day or two's journey just to get to the polling place. So Sunday was the day of rest or the Sabbath day. Uh, That was off limits. And then having it on Tuesday would give people who needed to travel all day Monday to to, to get to the ballot box by Tuesday. Makes sense. That's interesting. Uh, What certainly does not make sense, hopefully to all of us, is the history of voter suppression in American elections. Um, Today, we're not going to go too much into too much depth of this history, but give a basic timeline of American state and federal government actions to either expand or restrict the privilege and eventual recognized right to vote. So we'll start with 1776. Um, European colonists in America did vote and actively restricted others' right to vote. We could argue that I think the American Revolution was was in large part fueled by people wanting to vote for representation. Yeah, so the the cry of the American Revolution was taxation without representation is tyranny. That was the slogan that the American rebels cried. But did they really all have a uniform idea as to who uh, was represented by government? History shows us there were varying thoughts about who counted as a citizen and who should vote, and this changed over time. Mm -hmm. Legislative action were taken by state and local governments defining and redefining the privileges. Early on, the general consensus was, and and this isn't uniform, but it's pretty pretty, uh, overwhelmingly so, that if you were white, if you owned property, paid taxes, and were a man, you generally enjoyed the privilege to vote. In general, African-American slaves, Native Americans, and women in overwhelming numbers were denied the privilege to vote. Mm -hmm. 
Um, I was surprised to find out that Catholics, Jews, and Quakers were ex- were excluded from voting as early as 1776. It's surprising to learn, uh, one, because I had no idea about that, and also because freedom to practice religion was a founding principle of the earliest pilgrim settlers from Europe. Um, and this principle is enshrined in the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. Yeah, so we're just going to go over like some brief uh, timelines in history, and this is by no means a thorough uh, investigation into this history. But, uh, yep, 1776, although one Catholic signed the Declaration of Independence, they were not allowed to vote. Um, interestingly enough, though, in 1776, if you were a free black man um, who owned property and paid taxes, then you could actually vote in the states of New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and Connecticut. This is just an interesting quote. In 1781, Sam Adams wrote, Let each citizen remember at the moment he is offering his vote that he is not making a present or a compliment to please an individual, or at least that he ought not so to do, but that he is executing one of the most solemn trusts in human society for which he is accountable to God and his country. So in 1783, uh, the three-fifths compromise was was agreed upon the states. And this was very controversial, and this had to do with representation in Congress. But essentially, the three-fifths compromise was an agreement to count three-fifths of the states enslaved men, African-American men and women in a... Uh, oh, I'm sorry. It only counted the African men slaves in apportioning representatives. Yeah. So presidential electors and direct taxes. Although it was at a rate less than white men, African-American slaves who were not allowed to vote were being factored into the equation for determining the number of representatives. And that's interesting. So black male slaves were counted. It'd be interesting to find out were white women counted as citizens back then in terms of these representations? We, we don't I know. I don't know. That, we should but. have looked, yeah. Um, by 1787, women in all states except New Jersey had lost the right to vote. So since the birth of the nation, women in New Jersey could vote as long as they had at least 50 British pounds in cash or property. In 1788, the federal government left it up to the states to determine voting eligibility. So two years later, 1790... Uh, At that time, six states, Maryland, Massachusetts, New York, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, and Vermont, permitted free African-Americans to vote. Same year, um, none of the new states that were being admitted to the Union required people to own property to vote. So new states after 1790, you didn't necessarily need to be a property owner to vote, but it was Mm -hmm. still left up to the states who they allowed to vote and not vote. Mm -hmm. Two years later, in 1792, the constitutions of Connecticut, Delaware, Kentucky, Maryland, New Jersey, North Carolina, Tennessee, and Virginia excluded black men from voting but expanded white male suffrage. Until 1814 in Connecticut, a black landowner could vote, but the state legislature ruled that year that the term free man was meant to describe free white men, excluding free black men, such as businessman William Lansing, from voting. Four years later, this exclusion was made part of the state's constitution. It's crazy. Um, so you're actually seeing as America moves forward in the initial days past the United States Constitution is is an effort by states and local mm-hmm. governments to further restrict 
the rights to vote. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, by 1830, most states had abolished property and religious voting tests, so that primarily impacted Jews, Catholics, and Quakers. Um, but then between 1866 and 1869, Congress enacted new laws and proposed the 14th and 15th Amendments to the Constitution. These guaranteed the civil rights of black men and gave them the right to vote. This led directly to the creation of new governments in the South elected by black people as well as white people. This was America's first um, experiment in interracial democracy. In 1860 or 1868, the Louisiana Republican Party platform included a plank embracing equality for African Americans. John W. Menard, a black man, was elected to Congress from Louisiana, but he was barred from taking a seat by white members of Congress. Oscar J. Dunn, a former slave, was elected lieutenant governor of Louisiana and I don't want to downplay like the South's role in slavery or downplay the institution of slavery, but it's remarkable to me that in 1868, just, uh, you know, a decade after, a little over a decade after the Civil War, that a black man was elected to Congress in Louisiana and also a former slave was elected lieutenant governor of, of Louisiana. It's pretty remarkable. So two years later, in 1870, the 15th Amendment was ratified by the states. This gave uh, free uh, black men who had been enslaved and were now free. uh, It gave them and other African-Americans the right to vote. The 15th Amendment said the right to vote could not be denied on account of race or previous condition of servitude. It did not explicitly guarantee the right to hold office or serve on juries, nor did it ensure federal protection of voting rights, which is interesting. On February 25th, um, Hiram Rhodes Revels was elected the first black member of the Senate. He became um, the first black member of Congress, who was actually able to take his seat. In December, Joseph Rainey of South Carolina was elected to the U.S. House of Representatives, and he became the first directly elected black member of Congress uh, but second to serve behind rebels. So the other um, uh, group that we have not mentioned are Native Americans, but almost universally Native Americans were denied uh, voting rights uh, just from the basic inception of the Constitution. It took a and long for a time. long time, sorry. Yeah. And we should add women as well. Mm-hmm. Um, they weren't allowed to vote almost uniformly. Mm-hmm. Um, but in 1917, in a setback to Native American voting rights, the Minnesota Supreme Court in Opsal versus Johnson denied members of the Red Lake Chippewa tribe the right to vote. Yeah. Uh, two years later, on June 4th, 1919, the 19th Amendment was proposed by Congress. It was ratified by the states and became law, and this gave women nationally the right to vote. In 1971, the 26th Amendment lowers the voting age to 18. Congress proposed the 26th Amendment uh, lowering the voting age from 21 to 18. It was ratified by the states uh, by July of 1971, and it was done in record time. There's some very fascinating history in the timeline. Um, there is, like Tony said, a lot that we left out, um, but just tried to pick some some interesting points. Um, it is interesting to see how vastly different uh, the states approached all of this. Yeah, and undoubtedly also amazing to put into perspective that it took all the way until 1920 to grant full voting rights to women nationwide. It really just puts into perspective the 
the the the track of progress in this country and it's not quite as fast as we think it is for some people and Mm -hmm. and maybe faster for others but um it it's it's also amazing to see how the constitution the united states constitution is an instrument that has been at play to uniformly grant rights to largely oppressed people and i think it's something that we should recognize in terms of the document and its ability to be amended and the implications that it can have across a federal level because you had all these states uh, instituting these restrictive laws and practices to limit the amount of people who could vote, whereas you have the United States Constitution that could override uh, the biases and prejudices of the state and institute widespread suffrage. And that's good. So... But yeah, so much uh, so much progress has been made to expand voting rights to virtually every demographic of Americans. It is so much easier to vote now compared to the legal obstacles and physical hurdles that those fa- faced back in our recent history. This is why we should all get out to vote. So now we will talk about who exactly you are voting for when you vote for the U.S. president and vice president. What is the Electoral College and how does it work? When voters cast their ballots on election day, they're technically not voting for the candidates themselves. Instead, under the Electoral College, they're voting or casting their ballot for their preferred candidates' electors. These electors are often party loyalists or individuals close to the campaign. In all but, in all but two states, I believe it's Maine and Nebraska, uh, but all the other states, the winner of the popular vote in that state receives all of that state's electoral college uh, votes, no matter what the margin of victory is. So in total, there are 538 electors in the electoral college. And so each state gets one elector per member of House of Representatives, and then you get one per senator. And the District of Columbia uh, gets three electors. So to explain that in terms of Minnesota, in Minnesota, we have eight congressional House district members and we have two senators. Therefore, Minnesota gets 10 elector votes. Mm -hmm. So after voters cast their ballots and then after governors of of the state certify the tallies and the electoral lists, um, all the electors then meet in December in each of their own states. At that time, they officially vote for president and vice president. Um, members of the House and Senate then meet in January to take an official tally of those electoral votes. Yeah, so in Minnesota, the way that it works is that if you want to run for president or be on the ticket, then you have uh, you are actually nominating uh, 10 uh, members to Electoral College plus some, plus some alternatives in, in case one of them can't make it. And then whoever wins the popular vote out of those candidates their 10 nominees are the ones who ultimately cast the vote. Mm -hmm. Because the number of of electors um, in in each state is tied to its number of representatives in the House, larger states or more populous states have an edge uh, because they have have more electors. So they, in a sense, get more representation. Um, In an attempt to offset that, the founders of the country decided that each state would also get one elector per senator because as we all know each state has two senators Mm -hmm. regardless of its size yeah and so it's interesting though so prior to the 12th amendment of the united states constitution so according to the original text of the constitution 
the way that the president and vice president were elected, they were actually elected separately. They weren't on uh, a ticket as we see it now. And, and really it was the 12th Amendment that changed that. But the, um, the, the way that it would work is that each electoral member, this is the original way, they would each vote for, they would vote for two presidential candidates. And whoever was the top uh, earner of electoral votes would become president and whoever was in second place would be the vice president. And this soon turned out to be a, just a disastrous idea in terms of its design because uh, early on, I think it was the 1800 election, um, the they found out that the president and the vice president hated each other. <laughs> they were bitter rivals and they were competing for the presidency. And so they realized that this wouldn't work. Later on, they drafted the 12th Amendment to the United States Constitution, which essentially says that um, each electoral college uh, member must cast a vote for both the president and the vice president. And essentially, that more or less uh, created the system that we have today, uh, which is a presidential ticket, a president and the vice president running together under a party with 10 uh, electoral members who you're voting for to cast the vote in December, who ultimately decides who's president and vice president by the Electoral College. Can you guys imagine if Biden and Trump were like the president and vice president together? It might work. (laughs) So who benefits from the Electoral College? Um, The first thing that I think of without looking into this is that the two most recent elections where a candidate lost the popular vote but won the election. Um, it, in both cases, it was Republicans who won the election. So George W. Bush won in 2000 and Trump won in 2016. Um, the League of Women Voters compiled several arguments both for and against the Electoral College, and their work seemed to find that the Electoral College does not favor one party over another in general. So um, one piece of information they shared was a statistical analysis by Nate Silver of 538. He said that all presidential elections from 1864 to 2016 found that the Electoral College has not consistently favored one major party or the other. Um, His statistics show to him that any advantage in the Electoral College does not tend to last long, noting that in his in his mind, quote, there's almost no correlation between which party has the Electoral College advantage in one election and which has it four years later. Um, And then another example is uh, a popular vote Electoral College split um, favored the Democrat, John Kerry, and this nearly occurred in 2004. So that was four years after George W. Bush won in 2000. Also, um, a New Yorker essayist, Hendrik Hertzberg, concluded that um, that National popular vote. Yes, that the national popular vote would benefit neither party, noting that historically both Republicans and Democrats have been successful in winning the popular vote in presidential elections. Yeah, so just so you know, there's a a movement out there. It's called the National Popular Vote uh, Compact. And what this is trying to do or what it, it is doing is getting votes to sign into this compact that basically says we are going to delegate our uh, uh, electors to the electoral college to vote for the presidential ticket that wins the national popular vote. 
So this movement is is gaining traction. A number of states has signed on to it. And the idea of the compact, uh, because in order to win the, the presidential election, you need to get 270 uh, elector votes. And um, um, so the idea behind the, the compact is, is that if you get enough states to sign into this compact that equal more than 270 elector votes, that they would have enough then to be able to determine elections simply by a national popular vote. So they're basically buying into this compact legislatively to uh, uh, um, legislate how their electors ultimately vote in these elections. So it would take them away from voting in the will of their state and have them vote towards the will of the nation or the national popular vote. So my guess is that the national popular vote versus the electoral college, it's going to gain a lot of steam. There's already been quite a debate over the last several years about whether we should move to a national popular vote system. Uh, neither Leon and I are going to offer our opinions on what we think is best, but we're just going to highlight kind of the basic arguments for each side. Um, uh, some of this information we got is from the League of Women Voters. And uh, so why the national popular vote? So um, many think that the Electoral College leads to politicians focusing the majority of their time on swing states rather than campaigning equally in all 50 states. So a study by Fair Vote reported that the 2004 presidential and vice presidential candidate candidates devoted three quarters of their peak season campaign resources to just five states, while the other 45 states received very little attention. Um, the report stated that 18 states received no candidate visits and no TV advertising. So this means that swing states, swing state issues received more attention while issues important to other states are largely ignored. So this is uh, an argument for, but it's also an argument against, uh, from what I've heard, if, you know, one argument against the national popular vote is that the uh, large city urban areas the major urban areas in America could potentially uh, determine every vote. Mm -hmm. If you look at major areas like Los Angeles, New York City, uh, Chicago, the San Francisco Bay Area, and, and a few others, and there's enough votes in those urban centers to uh, win the national popular vote. And so the issues could be skewed and the campaigning and the messaging and also what they do after they're elected could be skewed entirely to the big city areas, thereby ignoring the rural areas, which really the rural areas are protected through the electoral college system. And that was one of the stated goals of setting it up that way. Yeah. Another reason why some want to move to the national popular vote and away from the uh, current electoral college is that currently, if the majority of your state votes one way, then your electors will vote that way. So even if you voted out of line with the majority of your state, um, in some ways, your vote doesn't isn't really represented because your electors will vote with the majority of your state. So to quote the League of Women Voters, quote, presidential elections are fundamentally about people, not states, choosing a president, end quote. So getting rid, and this would be the other side of the Electoral College, would be an urban power grab that would shift policies entirely to urban areas and high population states and allow lower caliber candidates to run. Not quite sure what they mean by lower ca caliber, but I just, <laughs> I probably means, in their opinion, 
you'd get more kind of just branded marketers who aren't really out there shaking hands with people. They're just more figureheads and, and symbolic people behind uh, agendas that are able to garner the most amount of money. Mm -hmm. uh, then we looked into the question, is voter fraud more or less likely under the college, electoral college or under MPV? Uh, so Pete DuPont argued that, quote, Mr. Gore's 540,000 vote margin, this was in the 2000 election, amounted to 3.1 votes in each of the country's 175,000 precincts, excuse me. So uh, some argue that finding, quote unquote, three votes per precinct in urban areas is not a difficult thing, like literally just three votes. It's not a lot. Um, so some people think that if we moved to um, the national popular vote, that voter fraud would be easier. However, those who support the national popular vote say that altering the outcome via electoral fraud would be more difficult under a national popular vote than under the current system due to the greater number of total votes that would likely need to be changed. Um, so you can, I mean, you can just apply this current election, although we don't know what's going to happen to the idea of voter fraud or even how about just something like counting the votes. So um, the, there's been contentions made by mainly Donald Trump that there's going to be so many mail-in ballots. It's going to it's going to create such a confusing system of ballots coming from every direction that they're going to be near impossible to, to count in a national popular vote. This would be even more chaotic uh, but in my opinion, anyways, and uh, the system that we have right now, which is counted by the states, it may or may not be less chaotic. At least you have each state coming up with their own determination versus each state just basically housing a population that's contributing to a broader population, which may, may make it more difficult and convoluted to potentially count. So we'll end with... Um just clarifying, because I needed a clarification on this, uh, the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact, it would not eliminate the Electoral College or affect faithless electoral laws, but it would change how electors are pledged by the states who participate in this compact. So it would mean that whoever is elected in the popular vote across the whole nation would then be elected by the Electoral College, whereas currently electors are essentially pledged to the vote within their particular state Correct. rather than looking at the whole nation. So I needed that clarification. Good. Well, um, thank you. Yeah. And we would love to hear from you about what you think about national popular vote versus the electoral college. Do you think that it's a good idea to enter into the pact? I know that Minnesota is not part of the national uh, popular vote compact. I know that there's many advocates within the state that want to, uh, but we'd like to hear from you. What are your thoughts? What are your opinions? What's the best way to vote for president and vice president? But we'd like to thank you all for your time. Thank you for sticking with us. Our next broadcast is probably going to be on the road somewhere or in El Centro. Uh, we'd like to ask you all to keep Leona and her patience in your prayers as she continues to serve those afflicted with the COVID-19 uh, virus and all those who are suffering from the ill effects of this pandemic. And we thank you for your time. We'll talk to you later, Minnesota. Thank you.